welcome to the Healthcare IT Today CIO Podcast. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. And I'm excited to bring you the most practical healthcare CIO insights and perspectives. We know your job is challenging and we want to help you be more successful. And today's guest is someone that I think I'm certain is going to help with this and helping you as a CIO in, in your role, in your challenging role. And our guest today is Ed Marks. He's the Chief Digital Officer at Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. He's also a former CIO at Cleveland Clinic and also a number of other healthcare organizations. Welcome, Ed. Thanks, John, for having me. I'm super, super stoked to be with you. Yeah. So before we dive in, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. Yeah. As you mentioned, Ed, and I'm part of Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences now as their chief digital officer. It's a lot of fun because it's my first truly global position and I'm learning a lot across health and life sciences. So I was pretty good at provider side, understanding the, the issues and challenges and opportunities, but never really knew too much about payer side or pharma or biotech. So now I'm learning a lot, still have a long ways to go, but I started my career you know, when I was 16 year old in high school I was a janitor at a healthcare facility and I specifically would sweep and mop and empty trash. And each day it's the realization of that I was doing something that mattered, even though I was a janitor and that yeah. did matter as well. And so that just lit the fire to serve in healthcare. I didn't know how that might manifest itself. And here I am, I don't know, is it 30 years? Oh, more than 30 years. <laughs> 35 Time years, 40 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It might be 40 years later. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I cleaned a clinic at Intermountain in Salt Lake City uh, as a high school kid. Uh, I was terrible at it. I'm much better on the IT side of things, but definitely seen the passion for it. It is interesting your comments about life sciences, though, because I think most CIOs don't really understand the pharma side, the life science side of things. Is there a value for a CIO to really dip into that side of things? Or, you know, I mean, some of them are just so busy with the operational minutia of life, but you know, what's the value of kind of reaching outside of just the provider organization side of things? I think it's really important because you have to understand the full spectrum. Cause I think one of the reasons we're so far, at least in my opinion, so far behind with digital transformation things in healthcare is because we've been in these super silos. Providers don't really talk to payers. In fact, they they are they view themselves as competitors. And pay, uh, with pharma, not so much a competitor, but hey, that's something completely different, different ecosystem. And then of course with biotech and big tech in general. So we have all these super silos. So it's very myopic if all you know is provider side. I was fortunate that in two of my CIO roles, we had a payer side, although we divested them about the time that I came on, or maybe I had like a one-year overlap, but I learned a little bit. And I think the more we cross-pollinate, the stronger we are as organizations and the ability to take on the challenges of healthcare. Because when we look at solutions that are just point-specific to our particular stovepipe or silo, I don't think we have the best outcomes. So that's why I think it's really important that people take the time to learn those other areas. Yeah. I heard one uh, person tell me that one day the payer and the provider are going to be the same. And you know, in many ways, it kind of is becoming it, that. It's happening, right? The pay payvider movement, as yeah. it's called. And it's happening. You know, of course, Kaiser has done it most famously on the provider sure. side. But now, especially with hospital at home, OMG, you're seeing the payers move in very, very aggressively. 
And of course, the whole retail explosion. I mean, there's so much dynamic going on. That's why, that's why it's really important. The CIOs really expand our view, broaden our view, broaden our understanding, make friends with your peers in those other organizations. They want to know just as much about the provider side as you should want to know about their side. So you pick up the phone and you can talk to any of them, I'm sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful place to be. So let's talk a little bit about your career. And, you know, I've read enough of your books and your articles <laughs> to know that you started from a you know, maybe a, a challenging place, right? You weren't the best student. Right. <laughs> you had challenges, right? And yet you rose to become a very successful CIO. I mean, CIO of Cleveland Clinic. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty impressive. What do you think has been your key to success in your career? Well, there are so many of these things. Okay, let me start. Let me answer that one again. So I think the sort of secret of a success in my career is multifaceted and it's hard to just say one thing. And John, I don't, I'm not going to get religious on everyone, but certainly my faith was probably the foundational thing. So I was in a lot of trouble growing up with the police and flunking school and all kinds of things. But one thing that sort of kept me grounded and safe was my faith and the fact that other people were praying a lot for me. So despite myself, because of other people helping me, it really made a huge difference. So that's, that's really number one. And in terms of practical things, it was just having that vision. And I'm, I'm serious when I tell you, when I was 16 cleaning, as I mentioned earlier, I just had this sense in my spirit, in my persona, my being, however people want to articulate that, that I was supposed to be in healthcare. So everything I did after that, I was purposeful. So I had to join the army reserve didn't have to, but chose to because I needed money to go to college. My dad had been in the service. I thought it was patriotic. So when I had the opportunity, I chose to be a combat medic. So that further sort of ingrained this channel in my career and my life. And then graduating, all that kind of stuff, I always look for opportunities in healthcare. So having that sort of following your passion sort of mentality really made a difference. It took a long time. It took a few years of, of a lot of hardship in my mind and trying to work my way up and get the opportunity to get my foot in the door. Uh, but that's really been key too. And I think through all of this, it's just staying in a servant's attitude and being as humble as you can. So as you mentioned, you know, you become CIO and you, you, it's easy to become self-focused and think, oh, I'm pretty big shot. I'm gonna, you know, I'm special and all that kind of stuff. And I think that leads to big time danger when you start focusing on yourself. So thankfully, again, I had people in my life that would, and still do today, sort of put boundaries on me. So when I started going, oh, too much about myself, they would like knock me back into reality. And so it's, it's having that support system. So one, my faith, two, having a, a understanding of my passion and following that. And three, having the right people uh, in my life that sort of knock things together. And then I'll just end with this, John, because this is the, the obvious one, but I wanted to you know, give you a flavor of some of these other things. But of course, serving with amazing teams. So I've had the privilege of serving with amazing teams. So despite myself, I always tell people I'm average and I truly believe that. I'm pretty average, but I'm smart enough to know that I need to serve with people smarter than me. And by doing so, you create these great teams. And then if you align that mission, that passion with great teams, good things happen. 
Well, it's interesting you say that because I think one of the things you're probably most well known for, and at least in my view, is building great teams. And, and I think you've done a great job. And it's interesting you mentioned vision. I think that's such an interesting part of building a team. But what are some of the examples of the practical things you did to like bring your teams together? Because I think that's more challenging than people want to admit. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I can be a leader, but like, you know, what are some practical things you did to really build your team and, and build the camaraderie and the direction of your team? Yeah, you're right, John, because you hear these leaders that are supposed to be great and they don't accomplish very much. And you're wondering, how come that great leader, in quotes, isn't accomplishing much because they're not leveraging their team. And so I realized that early on through sports that it wasn't about being the superstar. It was about the team. So I'll give you an example. I went through. So I was born and raised in Germany, played a lot of soccer. When I came to the United States, even at age 10, me and also my older brothers and sisters, we were super soccer stars. We were average in Germany, but coming to the United States, we were above average, right? Because soccer was, this is mid seventies, wasn't all that popular yet. So I recall being the best on the team for eight seasons. So that's four years. And we lost every single game. Wow. And it was frustrating. And then we got this new coach. It was the same players for four years, eight seasons. Got a new coach. He put me from... Uh, sort of a striker position to more on uh, defense and mix things up a little bit. And we won the division and it made me realize it's about the team. And so I started doing that my whole career. It's like, I don't want to rely on myself because if we do, we're going to be in big trouble. So it's really about collecting the right people and then empowering them. And then you have to view your role to serve the team. So you become subordinate to the team. You do everything you can to make team members successful because ultimately when you do that, you're successful. And when you're successful, the organization is successful. And when the organization is successful, that means the mission of the organization is accomplished and that's saving people's lives. So that's sort of um, in a you know big picture, but I'll get specific with you, you know, like what's, what are some examples, but that's sure. the overall philosophy. So number one, you have to care about people. So you have to know each person really, really well and find out what drives them, what motivates them and what they're looking for. So I always had that conversation, like, what is it that you want to be? So many times, probably half the times, they all want to be CIO. So I'm like, look, give me two to three good years and I will help you become CIO. I will be your reference. I will find you the opportunities and we'll make it happen. And, and since that time, I think the last time I counted, there's 16 uh, CIOs out there in healthcare today that used to report to me. It was funny when I was back at the Cleveland awesome. Clinic, everyone in, in the greater Cleveland area, all the CIOs had reported to me at one time. So <laughs> That's we would, amazing. We would get together and just have fun. And they were became better than me, which I loved. And that's the ultimate goal. So you want to make each of those people, they, you know, uh, help meet what their goals and ambitions are. So that's number one. You got to be there to serve them and find out what makes them tick. The second thing is I spent a lot of time on family. So I know people are like, and I had a lot of old school CIOs say, oh, well, you know, that's people's private business. You shouldn't mix the personal and professional. And I'm like balderdash. You'd have to, if you want the very best team, you have to mix the two together because there's no separation. People talk about, you know, this, this, it's black and white. It's not, it's very gray. And you need to show them that you care about them as people and their families. 
And so I would oftentimes have family get togethers. So, or we would cook together. So when we had team meetings or team retreats, it would be at someone's house and we'd each cool. bring a different recipe, you know, part of the recipe and we had to do it together. And then we'd include spouses. So like in New York City, of course, New York City is a lot easier to do it because it's a kind of fun city to be in. Sure. It's close. Is, yeah, <laughs> we would have people, they would bring their spouses. We would have spouse weekends. We'd all stay in the city where we serve. And, and then they would um, uh, all hung, hang out together and they developed relationships. And it's powerful when you have the partners and kids of your team all starting to mesh and it's very powerful. So tons of those sort of things. And it's easy. You don't have to go away somewhere like New York City. That's just an example. It could be a picnic. So I would do picnics. Again, have team meetings at people's houses, uh, have parties together, celebrate successes. And so really spend a lot of time doing that. Ta uh, icebreakers, right? People think, oh, it's such a waste of time. So here's another practical free thing is we would have icebreakers at the beginning of every meeting. And it's like, what's everything from, you know, what, what's the best concert you were ever a part of? Or, you know, different <laughs> yep. things about people and it breaks down barriers. And I'll, I'll give you one last example where it was how powerful this is. So I had a team and they hated, her name was Zarima. So Zarima has since passed away, uh, God rest her soul, but they hated her. She came from Russia. She was an immigrant and just, she had a different style. She came from a different culture and she was very difficult to work with. Very difficult. I found it difficult to work with her. So the team came up to me and they were like, we want to get rid of Zarima. And, and I was like, okay. I said, that's a fair ask. You know, at some point, sometimes people aren't the right sure. person, but I asked them, I said, what's her favorite dance? What's her favorite song? And what's the name of her dogs? Cause she had pictures of her dogs and she would talk every once in a while about the, the Russian festivities. And, and sure. I said, once you answer those questions, come back to me and we'll remove her from the team. So about a month later in the lobby of our offices, there was this big party and there was a Russian folk band <laughs> that's cool and Serena was dancing and uh -huh. she had her outfit on uh, from, from her culture and and everyone uh, I wouldn't say fell in love with Zarima but accepted Zarima and realized the power and the dynamics she brought to the team she was amazing with analytics and uh it was amazing teams ever since that point so that's just one example I could give you hundreds yeah, well, I, I recently saw a quote that was really interesting. It said, you may not like me, that's, but that's probably because we haven't shared a meal together, which I think there's such a power in getting to know the human as opposed to the work. <laughs> totally. And people think it's a waste of time. It does take time, but it'll make up so much more time on the back end than the little bit of investment it takes on the front end. So that's why I'm really big into, like you said, you know, breaking bread, sharing bread together asking people, finding out about themselves and really knowing one another. So those are some practical examples of things that we did. Yeah. I love the examples. And, and I think to me at the core is the connection. And I think that's a powerful idea. Um, let's shift gears a minute and let's shift to something maybe even harder for you to share. And, you know, I think that's what, you know, in this, these CIO podcasts we want to do. And could you share maybe an example of a time you failed? As yeah, CIO, I, and, and, and what did you learn from it, right? Yeah, you always want to learn from failures. Failure is not bad if you learn from them. Um, yeah, there's there's many directions I can go uh, to that 
come top of mind that were probably the biggest that I, that I can think of right now. Uh, one had to do with the old, I think it's attributed to former president Ronald Reagan, but trust but verify when he was mm-hmm. dealing with Gorbachev and stuff. Okay. With Vermont. And uh, it went like this. And it was, it was very impactful to me. It was around 2009. I was at Texas Health Resources. And I, would, I knew enough at the time to ask sort of the, my technical team, you know, our, our, you know, we were doing a big EHR epic implementation across a pretty big health system. And I knew enough at the time to make ask the right questions. Like, is our, are we all set up? Is how's this Citrix environment? How's this and that? And everyone gave me the answers I wanted to hear. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, we work with Epic or we work with whoever. And we did this testing and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm a pretty trusting person. And so I, I went on because I had a lot of other things on my plate and just trusted. Well, in December 2010, I remember I was, I always like to hang out with uh, clinicians and, and round with them and shadow them. And I was in a, I remember because it was a, a non-invasive brain tumor operation. So this, this uh, neuroscientist and, and uh, neurosurgeon, they were going through the nose of a patient. I was in the OR watching this happen. And the, one of the scrub the nurses said, oh, Epic is down. I was like, what? You know, Epic's not down. <laughs> And about that time, my pager goes off. Those are the days of the pagers. My pager goes off and sure enough, oh, oh my gosh, you know, uh, we, Epic technically wasn't down, but the Citrix farm that supported Epic was down. Right. And so I'll never forget, I, for about 12 hours, we were in a command center. It was, the system was unavailable. Of course, there was some risk involved. Thankfully, no one was injured or anything, but definitely risk to our enterprise and sure. our patients. And I was devastated. I was distraught because I've never experienced anything like that. And I vowed that it would never happen again. So the couple of things that I learned from it was trust, but verify. So after that, whenever I went to a new place, I would get down into the details uh-huh. to make sure that I saw the latest and greatest, you know, testing, uh, analysis, third party. Uh, sometimes I would bring in a third party to validate things if I didn't, if I didn't have a strong comfort uh, level because I vowed to myself it would never happen again. That was also the time where I learned about ITSM or basically a best practice for IT because most IT shops are just run based on how it was run five years ago from the person I displaced in my new role or what have you. And so by bringing in ITSM, I learned it was best practices. So I made everyone, every single employee, including the administrative assistants, have to be certified in ITIL at the time was version three. Now there's version four. And they had to go through three days of classes and testing. And if they didn't pass after a couple of attempts, they were let go. And then it became a condition of employment. And it wasn't because we were trying to be mean, but man, we have people's lives at stake. And we've made an implicit promise to our clinicians that we would have, you know, 99.999 uptime. And if it required, if we require best practice of our clinicians, we need to do the same for ourselves. And so wherever I went after that, I did the same thing. So at the Cleveland Clinic, guess what? first year, everyone was ITIL certified. certified. And we went from, I I won't give you the exact stats because, you know, it's not my story to tell anymore, but we went from a high number of major incidents per month to zero. So that's what I learned. The the second thing was you can't change character. So I love people. We talked about that already. And before I got to my, to, to a particular organization, I was warned by the vendor that this particular clinician in my team was of bad character and to watch out. I was like, no, 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 I can rehab it. You know, people, whatever. <laughs> I'm all about teams. And, sure. and so I embraced that person and 
Sure enough, they were very, very disruptive. I gave them a second chance. And, you know, after they apologized and cried and, you know, you know, went through that whole process. And again, they continuously undermined. And then I, I had removed them from IT, but I didn't take the final step to make sure they were removed from the organization because that person just continued to be a major distraction. So what I learned from this is that you can't change character. And if there's a character flaw that violates the values of the organization, you need to terminate that individual. And I was just too soft. And mm. so I've learned not, if it's ever a character issue, I, I just have no tolerance anymore. If it's just, you know, sometimes we make mistakes. It's not really a character issue. We just do something dumb, heat of the moment, say the wrong thing. That's okay, because you can rehabilitate that but if it's character, there's just no time to deal with that, especially if you're in a mature organization and you're of a mature age. I, I just, you just need to not have to deal with that. So that's the lesson I learned there. What's fascinating, the story of one where, you know, you definitely worked with the uh, the Russian lady, uh, you know, and one that you didn't. So, I mean, I think that is the challenge as CIO is knowing when to yeah. to invest more and when to, you know, call it, call it quits and, you know, move on and move, move the industry forward, move your organization forward. I mean, it's such, such a challenge. I, th I think it's interesting too, though. I mean, you, you've been CIO of multiple organizations, right? Obviously intimately involved. You, you, you know, I know you do volunteer around you, you, you shadow, you do all these things. And yet, even with all of that, you somehow find time to do the duathlon, which you're, you're famous for. You volunteer, you, you dance, you write books. Like, how do you find the time? Yeah. So what I do, I hate to use the word multitask because that's not quite it, but I'm not sure of a better word that everyone would understand. But I try to maximize whatever time investment I make in something that it'll benefit more than one thing. So let's just take duathlon. So I am on a competitive team. And so I know I have to exercise anyways. So I'm exercising anyways. And I need, I'm very competitive and goal driven. So I need something to make me compete. And when I, instead of like, if I were late, if I felt lazy, I would naturally be inclined not to work out. But because I have this vision and being on this team and the competitive nature of that team and and needing to, you know, reach these milestones for, you know, how fast I run or bike or swim or whatever, it, it forces me to do that work. So I got to work out anyway. So why not be on a team? So that's like a double thing. Uh, dancing, it's like, you want to date your spouse continuously. So she, my wife, Simran, she loves to dance. I love to dance. And so it's part of our date night. So we don't have a separate date night, which might be, hey, going out to a restaurant and going to a movie, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But for us, it would be, okay, we're gonna go out to dinner and then we're gonna go dance. And so in order to dance well, for me especially, I need some lessons. So we incorporate the lessons, which are part of the date, which are part of the overall, you know, keeping our relationship fresh. So that's another example of how to do both. When I volunteer, I always volunteer in the organization in which I serve. So when I was at the Cleveland Clinic, I volunteered every week uh, in the oncology hospital. And so it was easy. I would just carve out my lunch, quote unquote, lunchtime. And I would just walk on over. And when I did this at university hospitals in Cleveland, 
I did it right when, when the day ended. I would just meet up with my oldest son at the time, and then we'd go volunteer for an hour each week. And so it was, it, so it didn't make it hard to like have it come home and then have to go in a car and drive somewhere and volunteer. So you save a lot of time by repurposing, if you will. And again, I just use the word multitask, but that's just an, an example. And then writing is the same sort of thing. So I already wrote blogs, sort of daily updates to my team via different type of tools that are in different health systems for communication. So I would have these ideas about things to write about. So I might take one of those topics and write a little bit more deeply about it, which then became a blog like on LinkedIn. And then that would further lead to when I'm writing books, I could always refer back to some of these blogs that I had written and, and take repurpose some of the content uh, and put it into books. So it's not like you're writing, you know, a separate book that's separate from the blog, that's separate from your daily communication. So you're just kind of taking advantage of the synergies across all of them. And so that's, I think, one way to accomplish more in life is if you sort of double up these things, you're not robbing from any of them because in and of themselves, they're all important. You're not shortcutting them. You're just repurposing these different pieces and parts. Uh, it's really interesting. And just thinking about the writing section, I think people underestimate the value of writing in thinking, right? And, and you know, like it, it takes a lot of effort to write something and be able to communicate something because it requires you to have thought through it all, which is probably a key attribute of any CIO is to have thought deeply about yeah. this issue, this challenge to be able to write about it. Yeah, I'm, I know not everyone will have a visual, but I'm like, my head's going up and down. Absolutely, writing provides this amazing moment of clarity. So I'll give you an example because right now I'm really thinking, I'm really struck by how I'm, I've reached my 35th or 30th uh, high school, you know, uh, since I graduated from high school. Uh -huh. and, mm -hmm. and yeah, and so I think about some of my peers and I don't mean this judgmental. I know it's going to sound bad, but not everyone has aged as well as others. And I just wonder at what point did someone give up? Did, hmm. did, at, what was the trigger at one point that you said to yourself, I'm no longer going to work out? Like when you were 17 or 18 years old in college, you know, you were working out because you wanted to impress the opposite sex or <laughs> a partner, or you wanted to make the football team or cheerleading squad or whatever. But something happened uh, later, you know, life happens. And I'm not just talking about the, the physical, but other attributes, whether it's continuing your education or whatever's in your hobbies. Again, I, I'm being very holistic here. I'm not picking in on one area, but you could tell that some people just stopped and I don't want to stop. So that's why I think a lot about it. So anyways, I've had at least 10 hours of discussion now with people on this topic and my family and my kids recently, like this past weekend, because I'm getting ready to write a blog and it just takes a lot of processing. And then one of my kids has me going down this uh, neuro, I don't wanna to get too scientific when I write because it's not my area of expertise, but he was getting me all on the dopamine. It's all about, dad, it's all about <laughs> dopamine. And it's like, okay, I'm gonna have to do a little research on dopamine, but in no way am I writing a scientific paper. But I'm uh -huh. just trying to be practical because really for myself, but I know sometimes it helps others when you share, share more broadly, like, cause I don't wanna be, uh, five years from now, and suddenly the things that are important to me, like I, what drives me is I want to live uh, a long life as possible. 
and I want to have a strong quality of life during that time. So as I get more grandchildren and great grandchildren someday, I want to be there for them and active. So that's sort of what drives me. I'm not like trying to impress anyone that I can run a seven minute mile or whatever, you know, at age 60. So that's really the driver. So I'm really trying to protect myself, like make sure my mindset is in the right place so that I will continue down this path, God willing, and nothing, you know, from a medical point of view interrupts that. So that's really the driver. So anyways, to your point, John, it does, writing does take a lot of thought. And at the end though, it brings a lot of clarity. And so people should write uh, for that reason alone, whether it's a journal that's private or otherwise, uh, writing is really helpful. It's interesting what you shared there because I play a lot of ultimate Frisbee, uh, you know, semi-competitively. I played in college, et cetera. And a lot of people come out. I've been playing for here in, here in Las Vegas for 15 years. New people come out all the time or people that haven't come out for years. And they come out and they're like, I'm so tired. I just haven't played for two years. And then I look at them and I'm like, well, then you probably should stop coming out. Is that what, you know, like in their minds, they're saying to themselves, I should stop doing this. I'm like, no, the reason you're tired is because you stopped. Right, yeah. <laughs> if you'd kept coming, you would have built that muscle and you could have gone forward. But it is a challenge, right? And I think in this year of, of COVID, it's been even more challenging. And I think there's a lot of CIOs, quite frankly, that are probably out there struggling. What would you say to a CIO that may be struggling, whether it's, their organization has challenges, whether it's COVID challenges, whether it's just their own personal wondering, are they making a difference? What would you say to someone that might be struggling? Yeah. So I think, first of all, it's common. Everyone struggles at some point or another. I know I certainly struggle. It's kind of like up and down. Some, some months or weeks are better than others, but life is just uh, full of struggles and challenges. Yeah. And it's really about our ability to overcome each one and move forward, learn from them like we spoke about and grow. And so the first thing is just to acknowledge that it's normal. So it's like, yeah, it's okay to struggle. Maybe it's whether it's a personal or professional thing. I mean, I felt sometimes, many times my career is like, oh my gosh, I am way in over my head. This is so huge. So the first thing is just acknowledge, you know what? That's normal. I remember I actually confided Again, I, to protect that person, I, I won't mention who, I won't give too many details, but it was a peer of mine, super well accomplished in the industry. This was a C-suite peer where uh -huh. I came from. And I, I confided them, in them. I said, I don't know. I, I, I'm just struggling. Do I have what it takes? That's a fear. Do I have what it takes to do this? And he, we ended up both in tears. But anyways, he reaffirmed me. He said, Ed, this is normal. He, and again, he was without getting into detail, super, super accomplished. And, and that made me feel like, okay, okay, it's normal. Okay, now I'm gonna take the next step. The next step is find a peer that can help you. So mm -hmm. I have this great writing buddy, buddy. I'll mention his name. Uh, it, he's one of the best CIOs I know, Daniel Bracci at, at New York Presby. And he and I run together whenever we can. So. For whatever reason, I make it out to New York quite frequently and we go running and we just, you know, iron sharpens iron, John, as you know, and we just share with each other. Like I'm struggling with this person. It was funny. One time he was sharing with me a struggle with this clinician no longer there. And it was the same clinician I had struggled with at a different health system 15 <laughs> years prior. It was That's hilarious. <laughs> but all, we were able to help each other out. And I would tell him, Hey, Daniel, I'm, I'm really struggling with 
X, Y, and Z. And he would give me practical advice. It was just amazing. So that's what you need to do. You just have to be gut honest with people. So they, so again, acknowledge the issue and then find someone that can help you. And then another person was really helpful to me. And I was so blessed. I went to CIO bootcamp with Chime, which uh -huh. also is another good example. So if you haven't done it, you need to do it. And, and then again, you're going to find out that you're normal and you're also going to make really strong relationships. So I was fortunate that my mentor, when I went to that boot camp in 2003 was John Glasser. So uh -huh. at the time he was still at partners. And so I called him up a few times. I got my first gig and I called him. I was like, John, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And he would give me great advice. So really reach out to others. And then uh, a couple, two more key things is to always learn. Hmm. Is what we're talking about. I listen to podcasts all the time. I still do. I'm always reading. I read your stuff, John, that you all put out. Um, I you have to be in continuously learning modem, if that's the right word. And, um, and so you can never rest on your laurels. It's like riding a bike. You can coast for a while, but eventually you'll fall over. So you got to continue to pedal or sharpen the saw, as some might say. And the final thing that may be a different answer is you got to be a vessel. Uh, and what I mean by a vessel, like a vase, that as you people pour into you or you're learning or your peers are pouring into you or a mentor is pouring into you, you have to pour it all out, which is hard because a lot of times we want to hold on to things, right? There's a, I don't know what the name of the principle is, but we want to hold on. It's like a a poverty mentality might be a way of saying it, where we feel like there's only so much to go around. So whatever we get, we're gonna hold on to it. So if I get a little bit of wisdom, if I learn a little bit of something that might make me better than you, I'm gonna hold on to it. I'm not sharing it. And it's kind of a natural reaction, I think, with a lot of things in life, we hold on to it. And what you're doing though, is you're short circuiting yourself and your team and, your, and the organization that you serve because you're limiting yourself and because you're holding onto it and clutching and then you become sort of this unfun person to be around. Mm. So the best thing to do is as people pour into you, you pour into others. I, I just visualize a vessel where it's pouring out of the spout at the same time that there's a hose coming into it. And the more you pour out, the more you give of yourself to others and share with others and help others, uh, the more gets poured in. It's really weird and, and people just operate the opposite. So I, I do that all the time. I've never turned down anyone, John. I, I know when I was, especially earlier in my career, I would reach out to CIOs, even peer CIOs, and they did not respond to me. And there's still people today that would not respond to me if I reached out and said, hey, you mentioned you had a, I'm making this up on the fly here. Hey, you mentioned sure. you had a spreadsheet that calculated how many servers I might need for uh -huh. telemedicine they would not respond to me. I've never not responded to a peer or even a, anyone in healthcare IT. Now, I haven't responded to all vendors just, you know, because of sales. And, and <laughs> but I'm telling you, for healthcare IT professionals, I've responded to everyone throughout my whole career because people like John Glasser, like Daniel Baracci, they poured into me. I owe it to others to pour out so be a vessel. That's my last thing. Because if you are under pressure and wondering and all the things, you know, struggling, the, it's, it doesn't make any sense, but it works. Give, 
keep giving. That's another reason to volunteer is because if you don't volunteer about something in life, you know, whether it's your local missions or, or Salvation Army or whoever, um, you become so self-focused and absorbed, you kind of lose a sense of reality. And so by focusing on others, you realize that you don't have it so bad after all. You're not hungry or you're not looking for your place to sleep or whatever it might be, or you're healthy. Um, So it's, it's really important to just continuously give and pour out. I mean, it adds such perspective and there's so much value to that. I love it. And, and it's just amazing the principle that if you give, you receive so much more in return in a different way than you expect, I think. So Ed, this is wonderful. And this is a, just a, I love hearing from you. There's a reason I call you Health IT's chief storyteller. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing all these insights. And thanks everyone for listening to the Healthcare IT Today CIO podcast. If you want to find more great health IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com. Thanks, Ed. Thank you, John. Thanks again for having me.